Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, everyone. My name's Chris Dobson. I'm Director of Programs and Action Projects here at the uh, newly merged Commonwealth Club World Affairs. Uh, tonight's program, co-hosted by UC San Diego's 21st Century China Center and Commonwealth Club World Affairs of California, and is with support from the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Public Intellectuals Program, generously funded by Carnegie Corporation of New York. Um, it's a historic and symbolic day to be discussing China, California, and the U.S. during APEC, with Presidents Biden and Xi's meeting earlier today after a tumultuous year since their last meeting. As there's talk of preventing competition becoming conflict, there's also need to discuss two other Cs, cooperation and climate. We're joined by Michael Davidson, assistant professor in the School of Global Policy and Strategy and the Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering Department at UC San Diego, a member of that university's 21st century China program. His research considers the conflicts in deploying renewable energy at scale with a special focus on emerging markets, including China. Joining Michael are David Hochschild, Chair of the California Energy Commission, Dr. Nan Zhou, Senior Scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, and Frank Giraudot, Senior Communications Director at RIDE. So please welcome to the stage Michael, along with tonight's respected panelists. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Chris, and thank you all for coming out on this rainy day. It just started to rain right as the event was started, so we have a hearty, a hearty group of folks here. Um, so, um, as as Chris mentioned, I am a professor at UC San Diego, and I'm also a faculty member of the 21st Century China Center there, which is a think tank uh, research center that focuses um, on China as well as U.S.-China relations and tries to provide. A robust, timely, scholarly insight into the evolving relationship um, between our two countries. Um, and so I'm going to briefly talk about the, or introduce, briefly introduce the backgrounds of our panelists here, and then I'll give you a little rundown of where we're going to go. We're going to have a, a chat here among us with some questions to kind of get the conversation started, and then we'll open it up to uh, all of your questions. So be thinking about those as we, as we get through the panel. Uh, so uh, first, we have um, David Hochschild, which is the who is the chair of the California Energy Commission, appointed by Governor Newsom in 2019, and um, he has a long career both in government, starting out in the city of San Francisco with a special assistant uh, focused on solar issues, and then the San Francisco Public Utility Commissions, as well as a long history in solar. Uh, in the solar industry, and so brings a wealth of experience on this, and has also been very involved in the California-China um, cooperations initiative. So we'll be hearing about that um, uh, from David today. And then um, and next we have Dr. Nanjo, who is a senior scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Uh, and Nan has been involved in quite a few initiatives, um, both looking at China as well as looking at worldwide decarbonization patterns. And she was most recently a lead author on IPCC's uh, sixth assessment report, Working Group 3, uh, chapter on mitigation. And she was also very involved in the and uh, directed one of the U.S.-China Clean Energy Research Centers uh, that was inaugurated under the Obama administration. So we'll hear a little bit about uh, some of those um, today. 
And then um, finally, we have uh, Frank Gerardo, who is the Senior Communications Director of BYD Ride, uh, BYD's North American uh, spinoff. Um, and for those that don't know, BYD is um, uh, very well known and uh, electric vehicle and uh, vehicle manufacturer um, on the Fortune uh, Fortune 500 list, uh, Times Magazine top innovative companies, et cetera. And before joining BYD, Frank was a distinguished journalist, investigative journalist, um, on these on these topics. So, um, with with those introductions in mind and the, the esteemed panel that we have here, before we get to uh, learning about all of their insights and how, their thoughts on this very complex relationship between California, the U.S., and China on climate, I thought I'd set the scene a little bit for folks um, to give us uh, some context of where we see ourselves now in APEC uh, with the Biden Xi meeting concluding today. Uh, so, first of all, for those that didn't know, last night was actually the big news in U.S.-China because that was the release of the Sunnyland statement between U.S. and China, uh, which was uh, surprisingly detailed, and we'll get into it, I'm sure, in the conversation tonight about the uh, what was agreed upon between the two sides. Um, and then just uh, two weeks ago, we had Governor Newsom's very high-profile visit to China, spending a whole week meeting with everyone from President Xi on down, talking uh, exclusively on climate, and we'll also be getting into some of those details here today. So the U.S.-China are, are clearly on the global stage when it comes to climate change issues, and in terms of the Paris Agreement and how implementing the Paris Agreement, U.S. and China have been very critical to uh, both um, establishing it as well as moving the ball forward. And this has really been, um, I would say, punctuated by a number of really important announcements in the lead up to Paris in 2014 with a very uh, important high profile joint announcement between China and the U.S., which included commitments as well as uh, clean energy initiatives and a variety of other issues. Um, and then in 2017, the U.S. withdrew from the Paris Agreement uh, and China uh, stepped in and took uh, more unilateral actions and, and took leadership on climate change issues, as well as, let's not forget, U.S. subnational governments like California stepping in uh, to fill that void. And then since 2021, we have a renewed emphasis at the federal level and lots of legislation being passed, um, as well as some renewed uh, agreements um, and discussion between U.S. and China, most notably the Glasgow Agreement in 2021, which set forth uh, a number of working groups as well as a emphasis on strengthening near-term climate ambition. Um, and then, as I mentioned, the Sunnyland Statement uh, that was just announced yesterday, which we'll get into in the panel. California uh, sticks out, of course, with having um, being a leader within the United States on clean energy and climate issues. California has a 100% clean energy carbon neutrality goal by 2045 and a 100% new sales of zero emissions vehicle by 2035, which we'll get into, uh, I'm sure, today. Um, and at the, but at the same time, of course, we know that cooperation on climate change is not uh, a given and it is not always preceded at a uh, uh, rapid pace, particularly because U.S. and China tensions have been mounting um, since um, over the last few years. And these really stem across a, a variety of really contentious issues in the relationship, uh, which really prompt the question of what is the extent that the U.S. and China and California can cooperate on climate change and what are other issues um, uh, that uh, may get in the way. And so just, just to briefly mention some of those that folks will be familiar with, trade, as clean energy sectors get more uh, large in terms of economic size, the 
imp the impetus to uh, engage in different forms of trade policies to to build up domestic industries and prevent imports from other countries has become much more salient. We have industrial policy concerns both in the U.S. and China. The U.S. now very much behind creating industrial pathways in clean energy technologies in areas where China is currently quite dominant. Uh, we also have security issues, energy security, um, which is being uh, framed as part of U.S.-China relations, um, particularly thinking about critical minerals and other inputs to clean energy. And then technology issues. So some of these clean energy technologies are advanced technologies, in the, and we have a, a very uh, complex technology battle and race engaged um, currently underway between U.S. and China. So what's at stake for cooperation? Why do we, why do we need to have this kind of event? Certainly enhancing ambition on, cl on climate commitments, both at, uh, for the Paris Agreement and outside of that, um, and ensuring that there's implementation of those commitments is quite crucial. There's also a need to maintain sufficient pace and availability of clean energy products for localities to deploy those technologies. Um, in order to meet those ambitious goals. Um, there are win-win cooperative areas in terms of technology, information sharing, um, and we'll hear about um, uh, potentially about some of those potential technology cooperative areas like CCUS. But competition is also very uh, salient feature of the relationship um, because there are certainly arguments to be made that competition may speed the transition even faster. And so we'll be talking about all of these issues tonight uh, from the U.S.-China perspective, as well as from a key lens on California. So with that as a backdrop, um, I wanted to kind of kick us, kick us off with first going to David to talk about, you know, what are California's climate goals? Uh, what are those going to be most challenging to meet? And um, how do they align with U.S. national goals? Yeah. So first of all, thanks for having us. Good to be here. And I'm just back from China. Um, did... Uh, toward five cities and in, in support of the governor's trip there. Um, let's begin with just a quick aerial tour of what is happening here in California clean energy, because it's actually a source of great hope, I think, in a sort of dark moment for the world that we're in right now. We just hit last month 27% uh, of new vehicle sales being electric. Um, and that's worth a round of applause, better. That's a really, that's a great, that's a great milestone. We were at 5% when Governor Newsom took office. So we're on a track now to soon break 50% and be the first state in the United States to get the majority of our new vehicle sales uh, from electric. Tesla just surpassed Toyota to be the best-selling car in the state of California. And we're at about 60% of our electricity coming from clean, carbon-free sources. So really, alternative energy is the wrong word to use to describe renewables in California. And we're expecting next year to, to get to two-thirds uh, of our electricity from carbon-free. And then the governor just signed a law to, to require 90% mm -hmm. by 2035. So really what you're seeing is this sort of twin track of greening the electric grid, you know, through which the future is going to flow. It's not going to go through pipes. It's going to go through electric lines. And then the electrification of almost everything, the most important of that being vehicles. But there's also a lot of concurrent electrification uh, we're seeing here the, the the Caltrain line to Silicon Valley is converting, will be electrified by next year, and a lot of movement as well on, on all-electric new construction. So I think there's been a great nexus with China on these issues. China's actually, uh, they deserve great credit for advancing both renewables and electric vehicles. Um, and there's been, of course, some some 
trade and and uh, you know the Tesla factory in Shanghai and and other areas where we're seeing um, work together. And then I guess the final area that is I think of great interest to both California and China is offshore wind. So we just formally established the state goal last year to do 25 gigawatts of offshore wind. Our, our peak electric demand in California is 52 gigawatts today. So that's a very sizable chunk of our peak demand. And uh, China's been leading on this. Uh, in fact, half of the global capacity of offshore wind in the world um, has been installed in China. So that was actually a lot of our visit there mm-hmm. is leaning on that. So I think there's a lot of these issues we're going to lean in together. And I think we will both enjoy an additional dividend of this clean energy effort, which is reducing our reliance on imported fossil fuels uh, from some some difficult parts of the world. And I think that's good for, for mm-hmm. both California, United States, and, and China. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. So I, if we could dr- drill down a little bit more deeply, what do international cooperative efforts between California and China look like? And um, David and Nan, uh, feel free to to jump in here. Yeah, well, just at a high level, I will I just kind of acknowledge the elephant in the room, which is that, you know, the Biden administration deserves huge credit for passing the Inflation Reduction Act. But one of the features of that is that there's a big effort to now onshore and bring back many things we were buying from China, Mm -hmm. including wind turbines, solar panels, batteries. Um, So industrial policy and climate policy are now inextricably intertwined here in the United States. Mm -hmm. That is creating some tension. I think there's still a lot of areas to collaborate. um, And certainly establishing these joint goals and joint commitments uh, is a big part of that. I think on offshore wind, we have a lot to learn from China. On high-speed rail, mm-hmm. we have a lot to learn from China. Uh, I will say I think we have some lessons we can share with China on stationary energy storage. And this was a major focus of my trip over there. China is building all these clean energy sources, but they're still building new coal capacity, still, every day. And what they're not doing is building stationary energy storage. And we are the fastest-growing energy storage market in the world. We had 250 megawatts grid connected in 2019. By the end of next month, we'll be at 8,700 megawatts. That's a 3,500% increase in four years. That's equivalent to four Diablo Canyon nuclear plants. And it's working. The storage fleet is performing very well. It's helping keep the lights on. And, you know, that's something that, um, you know, we would love to support happening more in -hmm. in China. I think it's good for their grid and and certainly better than coal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. None. What, from your perspective of some successful clean energy ventures with China, what do you think has worked and why? And where do you think opportunities are? Um, I think on the policy front, there's a lot of area we can collaborate. Mm-hmm. And then in the past 35 years that uh, this China program in our lab and uh, um, we have been working with China on many topics, issues. Uh, we always introduced California experience as a best practice. Mm-hmm. For example, we decoupled, right? The, that was before we had electrification policy. Electricity consumption per capita in the California decoupled from economic growth, right? That's something uh, I think our Chinese collaborators were very fascinated because it's a really common belief. And uh, it's, if you have more uh, GDP growth, and then your energy electricity consumption will go up and up forever. But that was not the case in California. And that was the result from really rigorous um, policy standards, uh, codes, and a lot of these. And uh, 
um, and a really innovative policy we put in place. So we always introduce those to our Chinese colleagues. And even today, we are pioneering, right? We're experimenting all kinds of new tar targets. We, we do run into failures, and there's a lot of lessons learned, like including uh, the power shortage, uh, outage we had a couple years ago. But that actually shed a lot of light uh, for Chinese colleagues because when they're experiencing similar problem as they go through their energy transition, right, moving away from coal and then installing more renewable, they now install more renewable and uh, electric generation than fossil fuel, even though they still have a lot of those. But they do have problems when there's a snowstorm and uh, when there's a heat wave. There's all these issues they're running to that kind of set them back and to coal. Right, that's a recent issue, and uh, uh, while they're installing more renewable, they're also installing more coal power generation because they feel more secure. And and also considering all the Russia war and uh, uh, uncertainties, and so that's one of the reasons they're uh, actually adding more. But actually, and they could consider instead of building more coal power plant, they could have more storage. Right, and they could have more demand response, and that's something. And they and uh, uh, haven't really tried. But again, California offers great and uh, and experience and lessons learned, all this knowledge to them. That's what we've been also uh, and uh, introducing to our Chinese colleagues. Um, so I think of this uh, policy and in terms of appliance standards or building codes, we now have net zero energy building and uh, targets, which China hasn't. Set up, which will be very important, and for them to achieve carbon neutrality targets, because building in China accounts for roughly twenty-five percent of the energy, and it's still growing. And um, so, then building and has the biggest potential to achieve net zero, but yet there's no target. The codes have not been updated. And so it could be in line to achieve that goal. The, we are doing that, right? We are updating codes. We are and uh, doing disclosure, benchmarking, all these programs to make sure we have we can reach the goal. So that's uh, the area we are currently also trying to uh, and uh, work with our Chinese colleagues. And in. so, so that's uh, all the example I raised about the policy collaboration. And then uh, second part is about the uh, um, and uh, some of the technology area. David, you already mentioned the area we can collaborate with them. You talk about the transportation, the renewables for sure. But I also want to mention the building and uh, um, and the area uh, that uh, California is being uh, really leading in the U.S. And we have a lot of technology in the controls area. In the management area, and in a lot of these um, and uh, windows, a lot of these new uh, innovation and uh, technology coming from Silicon Valley, and so I think that's an area actually building mostly stay local. There's not much competition, right? The job stays there. If we do retrofits, energy efficiency. Escos, all of those, they stay in the own country. So there's a lot of area we can collaborate. Um, I've led this uh, U.S.-China Clean Energy Research Center on building energy efficiency, and that was a um, e initiative started by and the former Secretary Stephen Chu, and uh, really meant to not just to have a scientific academic collaboration, but to have a real world impact. 
How do we do that is through engagement with private sector. So that was a requirement. We have to work with the private sector. And we have all the U.S. companies, large companies, Dow Chemicals and uh, Johnson Controls um, and the UTC. And then also on China side, their biggest uh, companies engaged, working together and developing technologies, demonstrating those and, and working together on policy. All the private sector companies uh, were very engaged and they really thought they may they really benefit from the collaboration and one of the key benefit they felt it was the market so the in terms of the collaboration between california and china china market is huge right and so and they are at the economic level and they could actually adopt really advanced technologies and uh, that um, u.s and companies also make um and uh uh, at the same time, if we can work with them on the code standards, so those technology could become more competitive in, in Chinese market. And uh, so I think that's the uh, uh, one of the uh, really key benefits that our private sector really felt. And so that that's why they were uh, and uh, really and engaged. And actually, when the program ended uh, two years ago, um, they send us a letter and want to continue the collaboration. Um, but because of the U.S.-China relationship and got um, kind of a, and uh, tense, so and uh, it's discontinued. But we hope with this new Sunnyland uh, announcement, we'll have more collaborations like this. And it looks like China and the U.S. already began government collaboration on CCS. And they're exploring mechanism like the CERC model, at least for that. But I hope we can uh, use that for more technology collaboration as well. Yeah, thanks, Nan. I wanted to bring in Frank to this conversation. We, we've talked about tech, U.S. technology going to China, finding markets. You're coming from a company that's trying to bring Chinese technology into the U.S. North American market. Can you tell us a little bit about those challenges as well as opportunities that you see? Absolutely. And by the way, thanks for having me here today. It's, it's quite a panel. and I sure appreciate being here. Um, well, we're kind of where the rubber meets the road, you know, to, uh, to use a cliche. I mean, we, we're a vehicle manufacturer. Uh, we're headquartered in China, but we have a, a fairly significant manufacturing uh, presence here in California. Um, and we're navigating the landscape of U.S. policy uh, as it relates to, you know, imports and um and electrification of the grid and, and even on the heavy-duty vehicle side. So, um, so for us, this is a, it's, you know, there's this high-level you know, discussion going on, but it's, in some ways, for us, it's more of a shoe leather kind of thing. We, uh, you know, we, um, first of all, we, we have, a, like I said, we have this manufacturing facility, but we recognize pretty early on that you know, it's not just good enough to have a manufacturing facility that, you know, we have to have Americans working there. And if we're going to have Americans working there, they should be union workers. And um, and if we're going to have union workers there, well, then we should have the best, you know, kind of agreement that we could possibly have. So, you know, we implemented a community benefits agreement that was the first of its kind uh, in the nation as it relates to people building electric vehicles and involved in the, you know, electrification revolution. Um, so we hire people, you know, that uh, have been in prison, 
uh, people that uh, are, uh, you know, maybe don't have the traditional skills that you would need to be in a manufacturing workforce. And, um, and, and in that way, uh, we, we better our community. And by bettering our community, we're showing a face that, that, hey, we're not just this, you know, amorphous Chinese company coming over here uh, to, you know, steal some market share. We have an investment in our community, and we want to see the community grow as we do. We're very fortunate. The, uh, you know, first of all, uh, Governor Newsom's visit just a couple weeks ago, um, it, during that visit, he came in, uh, actually drove one of our cars. Um, and when he was behind the wheel, he said he wanted two. <laughs> so, I guess that tells you something. Mm -hmm. um, but but more importantly, I, I've, I've thought about this a lot. I, went, I was at an APEC event um, on Monday night, and uh, it was, you know, there was a lot of folks from China there and a lot of folks from the U.S. there. And they had a band come and play at the end of this dinner. And the band... Uh, played Hotel California. And, and and it's like, this was really what the governor's engaging in. It's like Hotel California diplomacy, right? Cal California is this really remarkable sort of beacon for the, how the rest of the United States can, can adopt these technologies. Um, and, and I think because California doesn't look at China as an adversary. California sees China as a partner. And so if the, if, you know, if the U.S. can adopt this kind of a stance that, hey, we're, we're partnering with China and that these Chinese companies like ours are bringing innovation and technology to the U.S. to better lives, then, you know, then, then we can, I think we can you know, cross this hump. Now, it's pretty, I got to say, you know, that sounds really simple. Uh, but, you know, you go, go to Washington and, you know, walk down Cannon and Longworth and Rayburn and come back and walk them again and try to find five people who agree with that. And uh, you'll, you'll be hard-pressed to find those five people, um, even Californians. I mean, we have, you know, local representatives like Eric Swalwell and John Garamendi are absolutely against, uh, you know, the Chinese companies like ours investing at all in the United States. So, um, so... I, I'm going to go back to my original premise, and that is shoe leather. And, it, and it, in, in, in order to you know, bring this innovation and to make a better world for us and for our kids, it's got to start with the shoe leather and just walking the halls and, and talking to people. And the thing that we do on top of all of that is we're extremely transparent. We have this factory, and there's all these people working there, and it's kind of in the middle of, you know, uh, of the desert. It's in Lancaster, California. Um, which is, you know, I, the closest thing to Lancaster in terms of industry is prisons. There's two large prisons up there. So, but, but they're not transparent. Anybody, and I invite everyone here, you can call me up. I'll give you my business card. You can come and see what we do, and you can see how we do it, and you can see that, that it's an, an American company. And that, and by the way, so I, so I work for BYD, but we're spinning off this company called Ride, and uh, and that's what uh, that's just you know the extension of what I'm just talking about here. Uh, BYD stands for Build Your Dreams. We form, we really believe that that's what we do, and Ride stands for Real Innovation Delivered with Excellence, and that's what we believe the future is going to require. So, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Frank. So. Um, 
I wanted to bring us back since you also mentioned it to um, Governor Newsom's recent visit um, to China. And there were a number of agreements that came out of this initiatives um, following on, of course, of a very long history of MOUs between the state of California and various national as well as subnational entities in China. So I wanted to invite uh, maybe David and, and Nan or others that um, to talk on what was accomplished in, in, those, in that visit and what does it mean for California's green energy transition specifically? Yeah, so uh, very significant visit. This is, first of all, it's a big deal for any president of China to meet with a governor. That doesn't happen often. This is the first trip by any governor uh, since the pandemic uh, to China. I think, you know, the context here is that collectively we have to get comfortable with the reality, with the relationship of China. It's, it is a frenemy relationship. We are always going to have some economic tension, some military tension. And then climate and clean energy collaboration. And that part has to be there. I think the relationship between California and China is actually the most important relationship in the world for solving climate change. The ability to scale. If you just step back and look, you know, we built here in this state the very first utility-scale solar project, the first utility-scale wind project, the first energy storage project, the first electric vehicle, the very first energy code and standard in the world was built here. China scaled those things better than anyone else in the world. And give China credit because the cost of renewables and batteries and EVs would not be where it is without what China has done. So those two things put together are potent. And there's a lot of, you know, my wife is Chinese. My wife's father's from Beijing. My wife's mother's from Hangzhou. Um, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, tension with China. And, uh, you know, even here in, in, in California, some of the anti-Asian violence heating up. Um, you know, my, my wife was afraid to go outside at times with this stuff. And I think there's like levels of tension that really need to be brought down. And I think this trip accomplished a lot. Um, the governor was treated almost like a president going there. They shut off roads. They, they were incredibly uh, welcoming of him and gracious. And, um, you know, a number of sort of uh, memorandums of understanding to, to work together on different areas. Um, the one I'm probably most excited about is offshore wind, where we're going to be building out off the coast of California, 20 miles off, um, floating offshore wind capacity. And China has a lot to teach us about that. Uh, we were down in Jiangsu province, uh, where they've done mostly offshore wind. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that I think can be building blocks for the future. Um, but there are other agreements signed. We are also doing a big push 30 by 30 to conserve land. The governor visited uh, one of the, the biggest conservation sites there. Um, we got to see what China's doing on that. So I think dialogue is good. I think it's necessary. I think it's needed more than ever right now uh, to extend that hand of climate collaboration, no matter what the other tensions Maybe we have to have that engagement. The absence of that creates huge problems. And so I think this was a very positive step. And I think it's even more positive that President Xi is here. That's a big deal as well. So I feel actually the last few months some real uh, momentum. But I'd be curious yeah. on your, your take. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I think um, that I, I wasn't involved in a lot of those planning and for the visit, um, but uh, I think that uh, we probably are beneficiary from those because of those high-level commitment and MOUs being signed up. We as a uh, actually were 
Department of Energy National Lab, but we are also managed by UC Berkeley, one of the UC campuses, right? So we're a California institution and uh, can help us uh, really strengthen, make uh, like uh, a lot of these um, commitment more real by collaborating on technology or research or analysis and many of those. So give meat to these MOUs and help it implement, and whether it is a help analysis, technical analysis to support the large scale um, offshore wind, or whether it is uh, about uh, and using these uh, demands uh, response aggregation, new and uh, solutions and to uh, help address China's peak load issue. Many of those area, I think it opens on that uh, uh, opportunities. Um, at the same time, I want to uh, and uh, conquer what David said about um, the collaboration of bringing costs down and the solar PV panel and many other technology are the same. They may be invented here because of the policy and the, uh, we have here. And then through the collaboration, China was uh, um, actually uh, and uh, very and aggressive in, in terms of testing and demonstrating those in their own facilities much more than we do here because we have a lot of private sector investment. People don't are not always willing to take those risks, right, to try those things. China's much more willing and to test those new technologies in buildings, in transportation, and in many of those areas. So through those validation testing they've done, and also through their manufacturing capability, we're able to enjoy the low-cost solar, low-cost wind, and many of the technologies. And so, um, and I think, I hope like with all these uh, stringent collaboration that could be applied to more, the area we're facing costs um, kind of a barrier, challenges. Um, and uh, it's a challenging, daunting problem and uh, we never faced before. And we really have to collaborate. I heard from colleagues uh, working in Silicon Valley in the investment, clean tech investment community how much they also enjoy the collaboration before and because there was an investment funding coming in again in these uh, relatively early stage technology that needs the validation, the tech to market uh, effort. Um, and because of a lack of a communication or collaboration, those really slow down. Again, goes back to the risk uh, issue um, and uh, there's a value of death issue and then the collaboration really helped to fill those gaps in the past, but it's a slowdown in the last um, number of years. And so, um, and I hope through this newly kind of uh, uh, renewed or uh, and established the MOUs collaboration between California and the many Chinese provinces, we can have more of those collaboration. We don't have to always try to compete in the same area. We each have an area we have strengths, like you mentioned about high-speed rail. They are more advanced, right? Many last 20, 30 years, they've been building so much more roads, bridges, and the railways and highways. And then they have a lot of those experience. And so that's maybe the area we can learn from them. And then we have a lot of the area David mentioned, and they can learn from us. And I want to also quickly, I remember the one area is construction. We have a significant housing shortage issue, right? 
the labor shortage and the material shortage and all of those. And China actually, and uh, in the last 10, 20 years, developed this prefabricated building, industrialized construction and uh, um, industry through their centralized and the policy, they just mandate, they can mandate and 10%, the 20% or 30% building could be built that way because they were also going through the mass um, and the production to meet the growing demand through because of the urbanization and uh, all of those. So we could actually learn also again from them and the industrialized construction. I know California now just began looking into that modular homes, right? Through that, because we we can build a building much faster using that way. We if we've seen this video and uh, the Chinese company built. 57-story building in 12 days, right? And they put together during the pandemic, the hospital um, and uh, for the quarantine in Wuhan and southern beds in 10 days, right? And we have a lot of these um, and uh, uh, kind of uh, heat, whether it's a wildfire or earthquake, we need to rebuild quick and high quality. And so that's kind of the method you can use and then you can incorporate efficient envelope window, everything there at the same time and lowering the cost significantly as well. So just to give an example, actually we can really benefit through a lot of these uh, collaboration. Yeah. So th those are really good examples. And I wanted to pick up on one thing that you mentioned, Nan, which is that there are areas where maybe the U.S. and China wouldn't directly compete because there are some respective advantages. But there is an area where U.S., well, specifically Californian firms and Chinese firms are directly competing, which is electric vehicles. And right now, Tesla is engaging a global price war, which is having ripples across the entire electric vehicle industry. And so I, I would love to understand, well, first off, how is that competition going? Is it a level playing field? Do we? What would it take to to make a level playing field and what's at stake for consumers um, to achieve some kind of healthy competition in, in this space where there are firms competing head to head. You're looking at me. I'm looking at you, but we can, we can go down the panel, but yeah, I'm going to start with yeah. you, Frank. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, you know, yes, we're in the same space as Tesla. Uh, I don't think we like to look at it as competition as much as we like to look at it as a collaboration. I mean, you know, our technology is growing their technology. There's, you know, we have things in common. Tesla builds in China. Um, you know, they have, they, I think their largest factory is in China. Um, and, you know, and there are occasions when we've supplied them batteries and, and, uh, and other items for, for the vehicle. So it's, it's it's not really a competition as much as it's a collaboration, and the, and it's because this, you know, there's this huge thing hanging out there, that, you know, that we all need to to address, and 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 uh, you know, the elephant in the room is climate, and and until we can, you know, get to the point where, you know, where, where it's 100 percent of new vehicles are are EVs, um, and not just cars, but buses and trucks and forklifts and mm -hmm in ships even, um, you know, we, we, our globe is going to be significantly changed. And, um, so that, so that's how we approach this. I, it, we, we never think of this as a competition at all, mm -hmm. more, more of collaboration. Um, so, yeah, so obviously, um, you know, there are policies that make it more difficult for, 
you know, for Chinese firms to operate in the U.S. And, uh, and there probably are policies in China that make it difficult for U.S. firms to establish their, you know, their foothold there. Um, you know, there's everything, you know, traditional protectionism like tariffs are, are in place uh, on both sides. And, you know, sometimes non-traditional, um, you know, barriers are in place, too. So, you know, uh, it, it, I think on the U.S. side, because that's what I'm most familiar with, and, and it, it's, uh, you know, the, it's this, the way to address this is one through policy. Um, and, you know, California is, again, a great, a great example of how policy can address some of this. You know, having policies that require advanced clean fleets, uh, having policies that require, uh, you know, companies to, uh, that manufacture vehicles to have uh, clean vehicles in their line of offerings are things that are going to accelerate this. And, you know, it's, it's, see, it's, a, it's not really a zero-sum thing, right? There's not just one company that can do this. Everybody's got to, like, pitch in and do it. So I think that's, that's really the, the way to look at this is, is more along the lines of that kind of collaboration instead of a, a competition. Yeah, thanks. Any other thoughts? You know, I just wanted to chime in. You mentioned the 100% zero emission vehicle goal. I am thrilled that we're here in San Francisco. I'm a native San Franciscan. It's great to have APEC here. But if I could pick another place to do next, I would have everybody go to Norway. I was in Norway in June. They're at 90% of new vehicle sales being electric. You walk around downtown Oslo, and it's silent. Actually, it's really interesting. We were so focused on climate pollution, but just the reduction in noise pollution and what that does for your psyche is uh, remarkable. And then it's things, they're doing street construction equipment. So cranes, bulldozers, dump trucks, all electric. Um, and then they've done a you know, big push on, on making things pedestrian friendly. We were there with the delegation of seven states working on offshore wind. And for the first four days of all of our meetings, we didn't get in a car. We just walked everywhere. And it was, it felt like walking, you know, 15 years into the future, but that kind of future, getting that many electric vehicles to supplant ICE vehicles, I mean, that requires China and the United States and China and California to, to, to bring that forward. Um, yeah, I just remember, and uh, some years ago, maybe eight or nine years ago, um, when the U.S. and China are a commerce secretary, TDA head, and and having a negotiation with China on tariff related to clean tech. And uh, I was invited as one of the two scientists from the U.S. to join. I met with the premier, Wang Yang, and then uh, in the room. And so they want us to really show the role of clean technologies and uh, in uh, meeting many kind of multiple objectives, energy security or um, and uh, for creating jobs and, and many of those uh, benefits. And they wanted to use those um, and the more science-based kind of uh, information um, to have a negotiation tariff for each other, right? To maybe reduce and uh, that to make the trade easier. So um, I don't know. I'm just, uh, I don't represent the LBL this moment. <laughs> My personal view, if there could be some and uh, trade deal like that for the clean tech for climate change, that's our common challenge. It's a global issue. It's costly. Only through collaboration we can bring the, those barriers, uh, kind of bring the cost down and remove the barrier. I hope there could be some deals made lowering tech both sides and, and make the 
at level playing field and uh, in many of the areas. Great, thanks. So I think we, we're now it's time to to give you a chance. You all have been patiently listening to us. Give you a chance to raise some questions. And I I need to note that um, uh, David and Nan need to leave a little early um, uh, because of a prior engagement. Um, but let's open up the the floor for questions. And I'm gonna have a hard time seeing everyone's hands here. Okay, uh, we've got a we got a mic. There's a mic right uh, right behind you. Uh, sure. Yeah. There we go. Um, Thank this you. question is for David and and for all of you. For offshore wind, one of the things that I had been understanding is you know wind is created from the differential between the ocean and the interior heat. And with the ocean rising, the temperature of the ocean, can you talk about, is wind going to be sustainable? Is it a good uh, use right now for um, renewable energy? Yeah. So just generally, uh, for a little bit of context, the wind resource offshore is far superior to the wind resource on land. So we, the metric we use is called capacity factor. It's roughly the 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 percentage of the hours in the day when turbines are spinning. So on land in California, it's about 40%. Offshore, it's closer to 55, 60%. The turbines are also much, much bigger. So when you're driving around the United States and you see a wind turbine, the gating item on the size of the turbine is the ability to fit a blade on a truck. So typically you see turbines there, they're about two megawatts in size. Offshore wind is now at 18 megawatts. So one rotation of one of those turbines it has about 12 rotations a minute. One rotation powers two houses for a day. Okay, the swept area is equivalent to 10 football fields. So, and we're citing these very, very far offshore, as far as 60 miles offshore of California. So the climate will be changing. Sea level will go up to some degree. Um, we hope it will go up less because we're transitioning to, to clean energy. Um, I don't think wind is going to slow down. It may change directions and so forth, but we're always going to have some degree of wind. And one of the great innovations in wind is the ability to operate at both much lower speeds and much higher speeds than ever before. So these things operate through hurricanes. And um, that's a big part of the reason uh, we're, we're going big on that. Okay. We had one more question here, and then we'll get to the, the front. Okay. I think you were... Oh, there was... Oh, no, never mind. Yeah, please go ahead. All right, thank you. Yeah. Um, if you had the opportunity to have President Xi and President Biden together and raise the question of how can we increase trust between our countries, not on the political side, but on the in the commercial side, what could each party do to improve trust in the relationships. Now, I'll give you a moment of background, which is I used to work with intellectual property and technology transfer, work with national labs. Um, so I have some history, and I've certainly read media about reasons why we don't trust each other commercially. And with your company, you know, you've got intellectual property patents and all this sort of stuff going on. That's one aspect of trust, but maybe you could address the question more broadly in, in how we can improve trust between ourselves. Me? Oh, um, I, I can start with a quick comment. Um, I think if similar to uh, people, right, when we want to make friends, um, 
one, we want, we need to be transparent. And so that's a, a step two, we, we need to let ourselves vulnerable to each other, right? So I think it's similar to that. I think transparency is very important. Um, and uh, so in that case, some of, uh, uh, I think the trust uh, loss uh, may be due to not uh, understanding each other because maybe there's no data available. Um, we don't know like uh, what's behind the scenes and what's going on. So I do think that uh, uh, and transparency is one area. And if uh, there's something could be and uh, done, and it will help and increase the trust. Um, and I won't touch the vulnerability, but then there's also respect. And so respecting and each other's um, and the view and the value, there's a disagreement. We respect, we agree on disagreement, and um, but uh, work out some common framework so we can respect the intellectual property of like each country. And um, so that's just some quick thoughts related to that. I mean, I would echo that 100%. Transparency is so, so critical. Um, we, you know, we found that within our community uh, where, you know, um, we have this large facility that the, the best way that we can, you know, work with folks in the community is to be transparent, have them come in and see what we do. Uh, have a better understanding of, you know, both the the workers that are there and the and the managers and the engineers, and um, I I really think that that's so that's really insightful. I was kind of like fumbling with this, and and then number two that you mentioned, and I also agree with is respect. I think that, um, you know, uh, I, respect is one of those things that they always say. You know, you have to earn respect, um, that, and uh, and yet. Um, you know, I think that's a, it's a two-way street, right? You can't earn respect unless you give respect. Um, so it's a it's a very it's a very fraught relationship because because you know you because it, it, you the use of the word trust here, right? And uh, you know, how do you get to the point where you you know you are transparent and you do have respect without trust? And I guess that's the vulnerability aspect of your very <laughs> insightful comment. Um, you know, when, when do we, when do we, you know, open up our coats and become, you know, more vulnerable to one another and, uh, imagine that that's, you know, not something that's going to happen overnight, you know, not going to happen because our, our two presidents, uh, you know, were speaking and shaking hands today, but, uh, I think it's just going to, it's just going to have to develop naturally. I was going to add, first of all, thank you for the question. That's a brave question and a really important question. I was going to add, um, I think just speaking for what President Biden can do since we're here in the United States, I think two things. One is to be explicit about calling out the incredible contributions of Chinese Americans to our society. I did a panel with Steve Chu on Monday, Nobel laureate, you know, energy secretary, ran the National Lab, and you know, across the whole clean energy innovation space, amazing entrepreneurship, leadership, uh, and really helping the whole clean energy sector grow and, and so many other parts of American society. And I think calling that out in particular is really helpful. The other thing, I just think we um, forget history. I mean, the United States and China teamed up together to defeat Imperial Japan in World War II, which had committed some of the worst atrocities of the war. Uh, Unit 731 and what they did to the Chinese people, uh, the whole Nanjing and all of the rest. 
Um, and that uh, was a collective effort that was successful. And I think we kind of need to draw on that history because climate change is now presenting uh, a threat that's equally as dire and um, recall that. And so finding ways to bring that back into into our collective memory, I think would be really helpful. Uh, so we have, I was going to go Rebecca here in the front and then we can go down this line here. We've got two hands right next to each other. Oh, I get called by name. Um, thank you so much for a very interesting panel. We have heard a lot of um, uh, informative discussion this evening about opportunities in the power sector, opportunities in the transportation sector, opportunities in the building sector. We have not heard a lot about opportunities in the industrial sector, um, as China is the world's leading industrial nation. Um, I was hoping that uh, the panelists might be willing to comment on opportunities for collaboration in industrial activity. And there's one in particular that I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on, which is that you know California has played this really catalytic role in all of these other sectors in developing policies and technologies um, and demonstrating their feasibility so that they can be scaled in China and around the world. And uh, the cement industry, it's only about 1% of California's emissions, but it's about 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions, which makes it almost as much as all passenger road transportation. So have uh, what what can we do to collaborate on this critical material? And because success here will be as important as all the electric vehicles everywhere on the roads. So we're we're funding some activities in in low carbon cement companies like Blue Planet here in the Bay Area and others. Um, I will say industrial decarbonization is really tough. It's, I think, uh, among the hardest areas to decarbonize, but there's definitely some some bright spots uh, there. Um, and there are also some bright spots in uh, the decarbonization of food production. Um, I visited a, a company earlier this week uh, that's doing coffee bean roasting and transitioning from natural gas to doing all electric. Um, great innovation. That is scaling. Um, so there, we have, you know, probably, couple hundred million dollars, $200 million or so we're spending just on industrial uh, decarbonization. Um, but I mean, you're in, you're in industry. Uh, I mean, what, what, what's your, what are your thoughts, Frank? <laughs> I, I, I just love that question. And I just think, it, I really think it's, it comes down to, you know, international accord and policy and it, because policy really, policy is what drives this. You know, if, uh, um, if there's no policy in place and, there, and there's no incentive to decarbonize, then, um, you know, uh, a lot of folks just won't do it. And um, because, they, they'll, you know, they see it as an advantage or an edge or, um, or you know, some it, uh, impingement upon their, their um, you know, God-given right to do things the way they want to do it. And so, you know, I think all this comes down to that, right, accord, policy and and without accord i think you still have to have the policy um and uh you know that I, all comes back to california right um i mean you know a, a, everything starts here it it does and uh it's nice to know that we have some you know some green uh cement uh 
happening, some incentivization there, and maybe steel is next. I, I would note, I, I think the policy discussion is going to be quite different across the industrial decarb because the sectors are so different. You mentioned cement, which is, of course, not an internationally traded commodity and thus doesn't bring with it a lot of the baggage that you would have with other products like steel. So I think if you had the steel conversation, I think you'd be talking a lot about the border carbon adjustment debate that's happening, how to set those rules to properly incentivize companies in China to become zero carbon, and what is the what is the scope for technology cooperation, uh, given that this is now on the radar of respective national governments. Cement, it might be an interesting example where, because it doesn't touch on as many of these other uh, fraught parts of the relationship, and maybe there is a tech and scale-up kind of dimension to it as well, plus the CCUS component, if that's, in, if that's included in it, which is now uh, officially on the table with... Um, uh, officially on the table with respect to U.S.-China collaboration. So I think there's some interesting opportunities, but I think they'll be quite heterogeneous across the different sectors. Yes. I think, is it 7 o'clock? Okay, thank you so much. Okay. We have to, As I mentioned, yeah. um, uh, David, not have to head out of the lorry. Thank you so much okay. for joining Thank you so us. much, yes. everybody. Yeah. All right, appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Right, good to yeah, see you. Okay. Okay. All right. Thanks. Frank, why don't you sit over yeah, here gonna, closer? Yes. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah. Get closer. Yeah. Um, so we'll become more acquainted. Yes, we'll become more acquainted. Exactly. Okay. So I think we had questions on the, the row here. Yes. Um, thank you. Yeah. Oh, it's not on. No, I can't hear you. Wait, how's the difference? I hear it. Actually, was also oh. directed to David and Nan. The issue I wanted to bring up was that we are making lithium-ion batteries for power storage and also for the electric vehicles. How much study in what we have done as for our study, what will happen to those batteries once they're not usable? Are they recyclable? Where would we dump them? Would there be a future for that? What kind of environmental pollution they create? Have you ever shed any light on that subject? Sure. Well, so first of all, um, we make actually uh, lithium iron phosphate batteries, which are slightly different than lithium iron. So they're, they're non-toxic. But most importantly, they do, there is a life cycle, right? There's a duty cycle. So, you know, we like to think that a battery in a, in a vehicle can last 8 to 10 to 12 years. And that, you know, what happens after that? Well, you know, first thing, and I think the most important thing is storage. You can extend a battery's life by 20 to 30 years just by, you know, stacking them into storage containers and then using some of this renewable energy to, you know, pump those containers up. Uh, and I, and I, I do think that that is, you know, the next step in the life. And, and finally, uh, you know, in our batteries anyway, you can, if, once they've reached the end of their usable life, you can extract the you know the materials and find ways to reuse them either either in batteries or in other ways, and um, so that's how we that's how we see the life cycle um, with our our uh, our batteries and the chemistry that we're using. That's a great question. Hello, I have a question regarding um, the building of the wind off of California. 
We notice we're having problems already in the East Coast with the sonar development and the beaching of the right whales and dolphins. Are we going to have the same problem with California? The gray whales migrate back and forth for breeding. So building 60 miles offshore will be in the path of the migration of many animals. So are we going to be seeing beaching of animals due to the sonar and the drilling and everything, which we did not have with oil drilling off the coast of California. Well, I'm not well, qualified. I wish David were here because I'm yeah. sure that there's, uh, I'm quite confident there's quite a, quite a bit of effort looking at this problem, certainly in the East Coast when there, when, you know, which was, uh, had some earlier stage offshore wind uh, development, there was a lot of focus on the impacts of those on uh, marine life. Um, but in terms of specifically going out that far, I, yeah, I can't really, I can't really say, but you know, maybe we could follow up with David afterwards about what kind of environmental studies that are, are being take, uh, taken place by the, the state government. Yeah. I think many panels here today actually have some direct um, experience in China. So based on your assessment, based on your understanding about China, do you think the ordinary people, including the business owner, do they really care about the climate change? What they really worry about more about the, the you know, more urgent issue daily life, you know, more economic growth. Do they really care about the climate change? Well, I'm not going to speak for 1.4 billion people, but I, I will say that there, that the policy signals in the long run are quite clear and unambiguous um, of both countries, but particularly if you look at China. The medium term, there are other pressing challenges. We talked about some issues with coal build-outs in China. Certainly, energy security and re reliability is a huge priority for uh, governments as well as people. And that's going to be a really important challenge to try to square with these uh, with our climate change mitigation goals. And there are opportunities to do that. And I'd say that's probably one area where California could actually provide a lot of really useful insights to China in order to address some of these pressing issues, which do touch daily life, um, particularly thinking about China's major power shortages two years ago, which touched uh, over 20 provinces and in some cases put residential consumers without power. So I think there's quite a bit there that uh, needs to be done in order to accomplish all of those goals of energy security and climate change, as well as economic growth. Um, and I think that's a challenge that all countries are going to be facing. Uh, this is maybe a more basic question, but uh, you noted at the beginning of the program that um, uh, there's this uh, Sunnylands agreement that was announced yesterday. Um, that has some major implications for uh, China climate cooperation. For those of us who maybe weren't uh, keeping tabs as closely as some others in the room, um, it'd be great to hear your take on sort of what was this, what are its implications, um, maybe what's the you know the opportunity presented here, and what are maybe some of the challenges of re realizing that opportunity. Professor, question. Oh, did you? <laughs> <laughs> I swear this wasn't a plant, but yes, yes. Nice to see you. Um, uh, well, uh, yeah, this this dropped late. Uh, this dropped last night, so we were all of us in the field were furiously reading it and comparing it with all previous agreements and doing all sorts of. So the hot takes are on are on Twitter, I guess X now, um, but then you'll see probably more more analysis coming out. I think it picks up the torch of the Glasgow Agreement um, and other previous statements. It adds uh, some new dimensions on methane. 
which has been an important component of U.S. climate diplomacy, and China is uh, 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 implementing now, drafting and implementing a national methane strategy, uh, which is uh, a good fraction of their greenhouse gas emissions in addition to CO2. Non-CO2, all non-CO2 gases will be in the 2035 NDCs. Those are the commitments to the Paris Agreement, um, which, uh, uh, which was ambiguous before. And then we also saw a couple of new things, um, some introduction of uh, some language around power sector emissions, absolute power sector emissions reductions following peaking, uh, which is uh, a deftly worded uh, statement, which would in somehow imply that there will be a reduction in, in peaking and then a reduction in carbon emissions from power sectors in China as a result of renewables build out and decreased coal use in the power sector. And then we also saw some a language on CCUS and cooperative projects on CCUS, which is quite um, interesting and promising given the need to really demonstrate this technology at scale if we want to be able to deploy it before mid-century. There's a subnational summit that's been proposed, um, but I guess potentially next year, and certainly that California would be really interesting to include in that. And there's a bunch of details on the COP the Conference of the Parties meeting from, for the UN, the conference is going to be held uh, very soon um, around uh, global stock take. So what is, the, what, is the, what is the cumulative ambition of all countries' party of Paris Agreement? How short are we of the 1.5 degree Celsius goal? Um, so quite a bit in there. Um, yeah. That was a professor question. <laughs> this is not a professor question. Oh, this is for Frank. Thank you. Um, Earlier, you have mentioned that in China, Tesla is, you don't see them as competitors, you see them as collaborators or partners. And I was just curious, like, what are some areas that you feel your company can really highlight or benefit, um, or Tesla could benefit from learning? From um, benefit from, pardon me? Your company. Oh, where, where they can benefit from us or we can benefit from them? Either way, yeah. mainly where they can benefit from you and your insights. Well, um... You know, Tesla is such a great company. It's hard to like, you know, say that they can benefit from 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 us. Uh, um, I think that, you know, for us, uh, um, you know, marketing is, uh, I think, Tesla's strength. And as you see, I'm in communications and uh, and I oversee some marketing, and I could sure learn a lot about about how to do, you know, better marketing. I guess, um, but. Uh, you know, I mean, the thing is, is that we we are very, very, very much don't really see this at all. And I'll emphasize it again, like a competition, but we really do see it like a collaboration. I mean, we're, if you wanted the benefits, we're learning from from them, you know, how to make cars go better or farther or, or the batteries last longer. And they're learning some of the same things from us. There's so much, you know, data um, that electric vehicles generate and in the way that your phone does, you know, like how fast you walk or how fast you drive. Or... So I imagine that at the end of the day, we're learning how to do this at scale and in a way that's beneficial for the consumer from each other. Oh, we got one more here. Yeah. Apologies. I have a professor question, which is for the better part of 25 years, uh, WTO member states have been complaining about how China, the CCP effectively picked its winners, funded them, eliminated the competition, etc. Now the IRA and the BIL legislation does some of that. 
And I'm wondering in academia, is this considered a good move on behalf of, of governments? We see Germany starting to do some of this, European com countries. And I'm just curious, what are, what, what are we saying in academia? Thank you. Uh, well, it depends on which corner of academia you talk to. Um, Died in the world trade economists will never agree with that. Um, but I think we see a different, uh, different evolution of academics that are focused on addressing climate change and clean energy, uh, which have come to embrace some of the benefits of industrial policy. And um, uh, so, I mean, several examples. I actually, we actually, uh, a bunch of us, um, none of which is a formal economist by name, wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs a few years ago saying industrial policy is is where we need to go before all of these new legislation had come into come into play because of all of the difficult issues of making pure economic instruments work just a pure carbon tax or you know pure cap and trade or what have you because of some of the really difficult externalities that um, in terms of technologies et cetera that need to be addressed i uh, I sense that the diet and the world trade economists are still uh, uh, upset about how all of these things violate w two roles. I don't think that is making anyone in Washington lose sleep. And I think there's a lot of other folks that are thinking pragmatically, how do you use this renewed focus on industrial policy to create as much benefits as we can and deploy them as fast as we can, while also limiting the downsides. And the downsides could be consumers losing access to products that they would otherwise have, a lower cost. Um, you know, I would love to have a a $20,000 electric vehicle on the market in the United States. We don't have that right now, but you have that in the United States. You have, I'm sorry, you have that in China, you have that in Europe. That, um, so we, we have to think carefully about how to um, structure these policies so as not to make it uh, too onerous on consumers to actually um, deploy these products that we need in order to achieve climate change goals. And I think there are quite a few folks thinking very intelligently about that question in academia. Okay, yes. And I think that might be the last one. This was really one, not one a chance. question, but more of a comment. I saw the offshore windmills. I did see in Denmark quite a bit. And there was a question about the environmental effect and on wildlife or ocean life. I was wondering there may be something to learn from them about the effect on whale migration and or any other life. Uh, well, certainly the Danish are, have been the pioneers in uh in wind technology definitely punching over the weight with respect to the size of their power grid and their ac economic uh size of the the clean tech sector so i think we're we're all really benefiting from those early danish experiences um the challenge and probably why california is not just going to the to the north sea to think about these questions but also going to china is that the North Sea is perhaps the easiest place in the world to deploy offshore at scale because it's very shallow depths. It, you have essentially three different giant land masses that it can connect to, and that's very easy to interconnect and deal with a lot of those challenges. And when we move to, for example, offshore California, the seafloor is very deep. We're talking about going over very large distances. There's a whole nother mess of engineering technical challenges. And so that's, I think, something where bringing in China's expertise could be very valuable. Informal chats after this. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is a really interesting panel. Thank you. Thank you.
You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.